So but before we read this teaching of Jesus, I just want to take a, a moment and imagine. Will you imagine with me? Maybe close your eyes, all right? And imagine that you are a first century Hebrew. So you live in a village near the Sea of Galilee. It's a militarized zone. Everywhere you go, there are Roman military on the street. It's been seven years since the Romans invaded. They, they are wreaking havoc on your society. So taxes are upwards of 80 or 90%. Uh, the economy is in crisis. Food is scarce. You're living hand to mouth. All right, the Romans are stealing real estate right and left from your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. So rebellion is simmering right under the surface. Maybe a friend of yours just joined a group called the Zealots who are going to use guerrilla tactics to fight the occupying Romans. And you grew up hearing these stories from the scriptures about how God saved your ancestors from Egyptian oppressors, and then Babylonian oppressors, and then Assyrian oppressors, and so on. But where is God now? Those same scriptures talk about the promise of a coming Messiah, and they have this prophecy after prophecy of a king, a Messiah who will come and will not just rule over Israel, but over the whole world, and in doing so, usher in an age of peace. But it's been hundreds of years, and he has yet to make an appearance. And then every few, few decades, a would-be Messiah would show up. They rally an army, weaponize, go to war, and are crushed by the Romans. The last time that happened, Rome crucified 6,000 of your fellow Jews on the road leading to Jerusalem. But then you hear that there's a new rabbi. A new teacher is coming to town. They call, they call him Jesus. He's from the town of Nazareth, which is, isn't that far away. And there are all sorts of theories about who this guy is. Some people think he might even be the Messiah. You're not, maybe you're not sure what to think. But he's teaching nearby, so you go just to hear him out. You show up, there's thousands of people there on the side of this hill, this mountain. The Sea of Galilee is down below you. And he starts to teach. And some of what you're hearing him say, you've heard before from people who are kind of really serious about the Torah. But a lot of what he's saying is brand new information to you. And at first you find it so compelling. And then he says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you were there, what would you have thought? Would you have thought, like I think maybe I would have thought, well, this movement's over. Good luck with that, right? That's not going to work. Rome is ruthless. Rome is so powerful, and you want us to love them? That's the big plan. And here's the thing. We still have the same doubts. Our natural inclination is still to go, like, that's the plan, Jesus. You want us to love our enemies. We're still not confident Jesus' way is the best way. But here's what we see in the rearview mirror. The Roman Empire is no more. And the kingdom of God is alive and well. And it has survived 
and thrived against every force and kingdom that would attempt to come against it and destroy it. As the followers of Jesus take seriously and live out this upside down countercultural teachings. So let's work through Jesus' teaching line by line. Verse 43. Jesus starts with, You have heard that it was said, quote, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So the first part of that quote is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, Love your neighbor as yourself. So love for God and for your neighbor was, was central to Jesus' vision for his followers. But it raises a very interesting question Who's, Who is my neighbor? Most people in Jesus' day said, well, it's other Jewish people. That was kind of the working definition of neighbor, which is why they had kind of added the second half of this command, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you, you probably don't recognize that second part, because that's because it's not in the Bible. But the leading story, or leading theory is that this was a Jewish idiom that kind of religious teachers had kind of worked into their teaching. That then became a saying. Oh, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's a saying, right? Now, do you think to Jesus that's the right way to read and interpret Leviticus 19.18? No, no. So verse 44. But I tell you, remember, that's a little verbal formula that's basically meant, hey, you think a command means this? Actually, it means this. Says, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the word for enemies there is ekthros in Greek. It's kind of a wide-sweeping word that means any or all people you don't get along with. So it's everybody from personal enemies to political enemies to enemies of America or enemies of Christianity or whatever. It's kind of a lot of people. And in fact, there's kind of a subtle shift. In verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, singular, but then in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies, right? Plural. As if Jesus is saying, okay, you need to love all your enemies. And you know, I've been, in, I've been around the church for a, a long time, and it's fascinating to me how people kind of bend over backwards to kind of cut Jesus' teachings down to size, right? Some people with this one, they want to make it only about personal enemies, so this is about your coworker, or it's about your boss, or it's about an ex-friend, someone you don't like anymore. But it has nothing to do with nations or anything on a political level, which, of course, no first-century Jew would have ever read it that way. Like you say, love your enemies, if you're a first-century Jewish person, the first thing that comes to mind is the Roman Empire. But then on the other side, what is weird is you have people that want to make this only about political enemies not personal enemies. So to them, Jesus is talking about our government and how messed up the world is. But I have a string of broken relationships behind me, and I don't think it actually says anything about that. You can't do that. It's the whole enchilada, right? It means all of your enemies. And how are we to relate to our enemies? With what? Love. Now let's take a minute because we have one word in the English language for love. And we use it from everything from I love God to I love nachos, right? Same word, but it means something different, hopefully, to you. So oftentimes, in our culture, when you hear the word love, what comes to mind is this kind of idea of tolerance, right? 
or the kind of this vague idea of like be nice to everybody. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, does that mean tolerance? Even if there's kind of injustice or evil or violence or oppression? Does it mean I feel warm, fuzzy emotions towards everybody? Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, not at all. It's not what he's saying. The word Jesus uses, uses for love in the Greek is agape. And I'm sure most of you have heard that word, but agape, more than anything, is a love of the will. It's when you bend your will to the good of another person, even if it comes at great cost to you. One commentator defines agape as unconquerable, benevolent, invincible goodwill. So to love your enemy is not to tolerate bad behavior or act like evil or injustice or oppression or lying or cheating or manipulation or whatever it is is no big deal. Let's just be nice to each other is not what Jesus is saying. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is call out behavior as evil and resist evil. Now, how in our world are we to do this? Love our neighbors or our enemies? Because that seems almost impossible. Well, Jesus has a few ideas. And I love how Jesus goes from kind of abstract, super hard teaching to practical ideas so quickly. And his first idea is very simple. Pray for them. And I don't think by pray for them, he means like pray that their house burns down or that they develop hemorrhoids or anything. No. What Jesus has in mind is pray blessing. Pray for for the release of good things from God into their life. Or if there's evil, if there's oppression, pray for repentance or healing, for change, for transformation. But pray for the good of your enemy. Some of you know from experience, some of you have been hurt before and you've been through some really gnarly stuff. And you know from experience that one of the best ways to deal with hate in your heart or bitterness or anger or hurt is to pray over your enemy. And over time, often there's a release of that hate or a release of that anger. There's often other people who have a power or an authority over your thinking or in your feeling, right? And sometimes it's not even people in the present. Often it's people from the past. But they're, they're, they're not even here, but you're still kind of stuck because they still have a power or authority over your emotional condition. That's n- not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is for freedom. Freedom to live in the moment. Freedom for, for, to have love for all. And Jesus says the first step is pray. This is not how we naturally want to deal with enemies, is it? Right? We want to rant on Facebook. Or gossip to our circle of friends. Or badmouth them. Or we slide in little sarcastic comments. Anything but pray for them. What Jesus says is the first step to our goal in loving them. Jesus goes on. Take a look at 45. Verse 45. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus is dealing now with motivation. So why should we love our enemies? What's the driving motivation? Well, there are all sorts of reasons, but Jesus' teaching here is that there is one that matters to him. And it's very simple, because that's what God is like. As children of God, when we love our enemy, we become more like our Father. And then Jesus looks out on nature, what he calls creation, and he makes a very simple observation. He says, 
Next verse. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there, this, so he, Jesus is living in Israel, a dry, arid climate, an agrarian society. So the rain, keep in mind, was a sign of blessing. It's not like that so much in our part of the world. But to them, it was a sign of blessing. And he says, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the sun, again, agrarian society, that would make your crops grow. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. So just think about that. Case in point. I checked the weather in Pyongyang, North Korea, yesterday. It was 68 and a little rainy. That's good for the crops, right? I I checked Moscow today. It's a little colder, about 45 with some rain. There's no freak monster hailstorms to crush everyone. There's no tornadoes. Just rain and sun. What does that teach us about the heart of God? Jesus is saying that every time the sun comes up and the rain comes down, that's God loving his enemies. And if you don't believe that, just read the story of Jesus. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And when you love your enemy, we become more like our father. And in doing so, we heighten our intimacy with our father. Dale Bruner writes this. He's a commentator on Matthew. He says this. He says, if we will live this countercultural way, we will come to experience God the Father in an especially intimate way. We will become God's close sons and daughters. We will become in personal experience what we are in gracious fact, members of the family of God. So Jesus is not done. He's just getting started. Let's look at uh, verse 46. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So now Jesus picks out two enemies of kind of the Jewish people who are considered bad guys in society. First is tax collectors, who were the worst of the worst, right? Tax collectors were Jewish folks who were in league with the empire, with the oppressors. They were considered traitors, bad news. And then pagans. And all that means is people that are not Jewish people that are far from God. And in particular, Romans who were considered immoral and adulterous. So here's another small creative step from Jesus. He says, greet them. Greet them. Say hello. Look them in the eye. And the implication here is maybe have coffee with them. Maybe start a conversation. Maybe even start a relationship. Like, I'm not sure if you've ever heard or read about this guy, Daryl Davis. Anybody know about Daryl Davis? Daryl Davis, he's a black piano player. He played with Chuck Berry, played with Jerry Lee Lewis, a bunch of other famous people. They made a documentary about him a few years ago. But what he has done is he's befriended members of the Ku Klux Klan, which for a black man is pretty risky, right? But he just started to make friends with these people. And he has this growing collection of KKK ceremonial robes that people have turned into him after they have changed their mind through friendship with him. He wants to eventually open a museum with all the robes he's collected. It is beautiful. But what's shocking to me is all the flack that he gets from social justice advocates that say, you can't do that. Those people are evil. You can't reason with people like that. Can't go near people like that. 
But to me, I think what he's doing sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus is saying that if you only love people in your nation or your ethnicity, your socioeconomic class, your political party, your denomination or church tradition or style of music or fashion or whatever, you're no better than tax collectors or the pagans. You're just perpetuating the tribalism that's wreaked havoc on our society for thousands of years. Jesus crosses all sorts of social barriers. To greet, to say hello, to eat and drink, even with tax collectors and pagans. He gets in all sorts of trouble for this. Who's he make really mad? The Pharisees, like the super religious of the day. They are ticked. They are like, you do not eat with people like that. To eat with them is to approve of them. Which isn't how Jesus sees it at all. And I'm not... I'm not, even, I'm not sure we kind of fully get it because there's no emotional trigger for us when it comes to tax collectors. Let's try to kind of translate and transpose to our culture. I don't know if Jesus would do this or not. This is just a hypothetical situation. What if there was a white supremacist rally in town? Or a, or a gay pride parade? Or a Westboro Baptist rally? Or an abortion rights rally? Take your pick of who you would consider an enemy. And say, Jesus went up there started talking to some people. And then he invites 10 white supremacists, gay pride activists, Westboro Baptist members, abortion rights activists, to sit down and share a meal at Subway for lunch. And he sat down and he talked with them and he asked them about their life. And he laughed with them and he got to know them. How would you feel about that? Would you think, Jesus, you can't reason with them. You need to stay away, right? Do not contaminate yourself. You need to fight those people. Jesus was not afraid to stand up against evil and injustice and violence and oppression. He wasn't afraid to risk his own life, right? He was killed because he was such a threat to the empire and the religious establishment. He would not endorse evil at all. But I can't help but wonder if he would share a meal, if he would say hello, if he would start a conversation, if he would turn an enemy into a neighbor. Because Jesus' way was to love all with open, indiscriminate, generous, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped, bold, enemy love. Because that's what the Father's like. Finally, here comes the line to end all lines. Take a look at the end there. 48, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So for this week, that's just a little something to work on, I guess. Just... (laughs) I have this one down, but I've been following Jesus for a while now. I'm joking if that wasn't obvious. And a lot of people kind of misread this line because they read it out of context as a standalone statement rather than the last line of a teaching on enemy love. Perfect here means complete. It it Translated, it means like a whole mature adult. So you've reached full development. In context, Jesus is saying that the the end goal of your following Jesus is to grow in, in mature into the kind of man or woman who is like God. That's the, what the word godly means. Right? It's, you're godlike. And Jesus is saying, if you want to plot your life, where you are on the journey from immaturity to maturity, from not godlike, very much at all, to a whole lot like God, if you want to plot where you are on that spectrum, it's really easy. You just map where you, are, where you stand in relation to your enemy. 
the less you love your enemy, the more immature you are. The more you love your enemy, the more mature you are. Because for Jesus, love is the great test. Now, of course, this raises all kinds of questions. I mean, first is like, can this actually work like in the real world? And the answer is yes. And you are living proof of it. Every last one of you who is a follower of Jesus. I love what the writer Paul does with his teaching of Jesus in his letter to the church in Rome. Listen to this. Romans chapter 5. says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the what? The ungodly. Those that are not like God at all. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Listen to this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were, what? God's enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were all enemies of Christ at one point. How did he win us over? How did you become a son or a daughter? Through violence? Through hate? No. Through self-sacrificial, cross-shaped suffering. Love. He loved you from, and me, from death into life, into the kingdom of God. He made you his neighbor. That's the way of Jesus, is love. Love is his driving motivation. His force for transformation. You know, Jesus had other options other than love, right? He could have taken up the sword. He he could have fought Rome. He could have destroyed them. He says that. Matthew 26, 53, he says, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. Jesus had all the firepower he needed to do whatever he wanted to, if if that's what he wanted But at every turn, nope. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. And when followers of Jesus go out and do this, man, some beautiful things tend to happen. A few days ago, I came across this speech. I've been reading a lot of Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, and I was just so moved by this. I just want to read it over you. Quote, to our most bitter opponents, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. And do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail, and as difficult as that is, we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators and violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead. We will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom, but we will not, we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart 
and you're conscious that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. I think that's what Jesus is all about. Now remember, Dr. King died for this. So on one hand, does it work? Absolutely. You live out the teachings of Jesus, there's a really good chance that in the language of Tolstoy, you will break the chain of evil. But on the other hand, you might end up like Dr. King. You might end up like Jesus. He was arrested on false charges as a threat to the empire. This kind of stuff is always a threat. I was reading recently about the Anabaptists in the 16th century. All the Anabaptists basically said is, we want to make the Sermon on the Mount the center of our life, so we won't take an oath, which means we won't serve the government. We won't use violence. And because of that, we believe in the separation of church and state. So just let us go over here, mind our business, and follow Jesus. Like That's all they said. Now, with such a threat to the status quo that the only thing people could think of doing was killing them. One historian said the only thing in the 16th century that Catholics and Protestants could agree on was killing Anabaptists. In the 16th century, that was kind of the answer for everything. But still, why is this such a threat? Because it's so countercultural. My point is Jesus' invitation is not to a safe, secure life. It's not to a life where you don't have to worry about death or suffering or pain. It's to a life where you're not even scared of death itself, really, because you know it's on the other side. And this is not some fringe out there teaching. It is central to the way of Jesus. So prior to Constantine, for the first three or four hundred years of the church history, love your enemy is the most quoted verse of the Bible by the church fathers. This was at a time when hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus Men and women and children were dying in the Roman Colosseum in wave after wave of persecution. Love for God, for neighbor, and even for enemy is central to what God is all about. Now again, as I said last week, this teaching of Jesus here raises all sorts of questions about how this works itself out in real life. But I think that there are two questions we really need to ask ourselves. Who's who's your enemy? For some of you, it's the opposing political party to your own. So it's the Republican Party or it's the Democratic Party, depending on where you're at. We have both sides here. For some people in our nation, it's the opposite color of skin. For some people, it's another gender. For some people, it's another sexual orientation. For some people, it's a legal immigrant. There's a long list of possibilities. So who, for you, is your enemy? And then think a little, close, a little bit closer to home. Get past kind of the faceless group. Is there somebody across the street? Is there somebody in your office, a coworker, your boss? Is there a friend or an ex-friend or a family member? Is there an uncle or a mom or a dad or a grandfather? Does someone come to mind? Second question, what are you doing to turn them into neighbors? And maybe you think, where do I even start? Just say a prayer? And the answer is, yeah, maybe that's all you can do right now. Just say a one-sentence prayer. Just start right where you're at. Say a prayer. Maybe if you're ready, greet them. Now, I get that, you know, if, somebody, if it's somebody who's dangerous or toxic or abusive, maybe you can't do that. There are some people you can't interact with. 
So you have to kind of do it from a distance. And I, that's a hard thing. I get that. But what are you doing to turn your enemies into neighbors? And it's a journey, right? And what I think is maybe the most fascinating thing in all this is Jesus doesn't tell us in this passage, not even once, not one word about how we should feel. Because biblically speaking, love is a choice we make. And Jesus is telling us, listen, that person who hates you or curses you or persecutes you, I understand every feeling you may have against them. I'm telling you, do good to them. I'm telling you to pray for them. And as you do that, you'll find your heart changing toward them. A very true principle is that if you've put love into action, you may find that your feelings follow. Feelings usually follow action, not the other way around. So you don't have to feel it to do it. There is power in submission to God and loving that person and expressing the kingdom of God. It will be difficult, hands down. We know that going in. We don't follow the way of Jesus because it's easy. But if we commit to praying and loving others, even when it's difficult, inviting the Holy Spirit to be part of that situation, I truly believe that we will be able to learn to love our enemies and express the kingdom of God from a place of bold, courageous, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love. And that's the call of Jesus. And when we do that, some really beautiful things will happen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, we need you, Jesus, to come and give us grace and strength, Lord. Fill our lives with your love so that we can have the resources to love our enemies. To bless those who curse us, to pray for those who persecute us. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each individual heart, speak to them about a relationship that they need to proactively make better by love. Father, we need this because we understand this is how you loved us. You make the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So thank you for loving us, even in times when our hearts were not turned towards you. Help us now to love others the same way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.